Hi, everyone. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to give a quick shout out to our awesome sponsors at Zeewee. You know, our furry pals are carnivores, and Zeewee gets that. Their peak prey recipes are spot on with what they would choose in the wild. We're talking real meat, organs, fish, and even green mussels. Zeewee's been all about peak nutrition since 2002. Ethical, sustainable, and packed with only the purest ingredients from New Zealand. If you want your pet munching on what they're biologically designed to thrive on, check out Zeewee. And for 20% off, feel free to put in our discount code, CanonOptima20. What the dog doing? Hi, how's the baby? Yeah. Teething, not sleeping. Yeah. She wakes up like a zombie. And you got to pick her up and soothe her back to sleep. So her front, her bottom two teeth are all the way out. And her front two top teeth are trying to come in. So the bottom teeth are rubbing against the top. And it's just it's brutal for her. So Baby's as soon as she cuts those teeth... Yeah. I have like no sense of baby yeah. anything, and they just scare the shit out of me. Yeah, but then when you have them, there's a bunch of chemicals that tell you to keep them alive. It's very strange. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> Everyone says you don't know what you're missing out on. I don't know what I don't know. Ignorance is bliss. So I, I really wanted to get you on here. I've been making my rounds talking to dog trainers that are active in reactivity and extreme behavior, and it's a it's an eject from the typical dog trainer conversations that you hear where it's like more of a, let's talk about something. Here's what I think. What do you think? And it's more about unpacking the trainer in front of you, like finding out a little bit more about them, how they came to be like, how they got to where they are, what they're good at. And then they're in really unpacking their processes and how they look at things to find some distinction in them and to find a genius in them, if that makes sense. And to more or less celebrate what makes us different as opposed to fight about what makes us different. Oh, I'm so glad you said that because that's the main reason why I got off all my platforms is it my apprentices have told me about the newcomers that have created all these waves, not that it was perfect before. Holy shit. Am I allowed to cuss on here? Yes, you are. (laughs) But I've wanted to make a video. It's been officially two years since I've posted, but I'm glad that you had set this up. But all of the trainers, everyone, even the people that I'm friends with, it turns into shit talking other trainers and how they do it and they're not doing it this way or that way don't get me wrong there's some brutal people out there but there's a lot of it that's who's actually winning the clients don't know what any of this term like any of the the scientific terms mean so it's just what quadrants do you use and do you use this and that doesn't help anybody and it's just a soap opera on the fucking internet yeah (laughs) it's it's so bad i think that the the social medias have become this overpowered marketing tool. And so you have a lot of trainers trying to compete with the pillars in their area by marketing themselves on social media and putting their stuff out there and inadvertently feeding it to a bunch of people that like casting doubt in what you do. And it sucks. And that's one of the reasons that I, I wanted to do this was to go a little bit further and show people that the very thing that we're bickering about when you talk about a trainer doing something different There's a reason that the trainer does something different. There is a roadmap and there are hundreds of dogs that have led to the pretty much the success of what they're good at. And the idea that trainers have to be good at everything is one of the biggest reasons that this debate and this war is perpetuated because trainers get good at a couple things and they become world class at a couple things if they stay in it long enough. And that's where I find that there's a lot of people like, can I train a puppy? Yeah. Do I want to train puppies? No. And that's something that always, in a, 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 there's a certain point where there's some people who don't train, that they don't have enough knowledge. They watch one 
television show of how to train your dog. They practice on their own dog. Boom. They're a professional. But they can't affect yeah. the, the fine tuning of what actually happens with these dogs. And so I get these clients that are like, oh, I just need simple little things here and there. And I'm like, oh, gosh. Yeah, your dog's not going to eat me. But if I don't train this puppy, who's going to train it? Is it going to go to some yeah. compulsion trainer, someone else that can train it, but then other bad like behaviors step in and then they have this. And then this is more of a belief system, but can you tell your dog no? Should you tell your dog no? What is no? Is it a correction? Is it hitting your dog? Is it beating your dog? No, it's the word no. But the everyday science says this new cutting edge science says that we shouldn't tell our kids no. We should let them do whatever they want. And at that point, it's majority of parents go, fuck that. I don't know about you, but if my parents didn't like, teach me the word no and those boundaries that come with that word, I would be dead in a ditch or in prison. Most parents and most people agree with that. Why don't we bat an eye when we say we can't tell our dogs no? I agree. I think, um, you know, behavior can be boiled into one logic model, what you want the dog doing and what you don't want the dog doing. And so there has to be a go, no go communication there. It's 50-50. The reason that I wanted to talk to you today, I know you've gone off the grid, which which is probably like the healthiest thing a trainer can do is take care of themselves and their business and not stay plugged into the shenanigans. But when I first found you on social media, you made a big splash in the audience side of things, the you know people that are just interested in dogs in general, and a big splash on the trainer side because you were taking these really spectacle gnarly animals and bringing them through a process where you could tell that your process had led to rehabilitation. You could see the results. And more importantly, you were framing your video in a way where it wasn't the typical before and after. You were like, no, motherfucker, this was a long ass process and here's my fucking process. And that let you a, a phenomenal amount of credibility in being able to see an extreme case through and being transparent about the work and the roadmap that goes into that dog. So the reason that I wanted to talk to you today, because I already, most times I would start this conversation with, what are you good at? What do you, what do you enjoy most in dog training? You and I have already had a couple of conversations and I've got a sense for your passions, but just for prosperity's sake, I want you to talk a little bit about how you came to be, the cliff notes to how you became this out of control bully Mustang trainer. <laughs> I don't know. I don't remember when I started. We always had animals. My dad has a little piece of property now, thirty minutes north of me, and there was always just these animals around us. And I'm like, I don't know if I like that one. And then there's a horse three properties away that's every trainer has deemed. Oh yeah, no, this will kill somebody. Don't touch this horse. I'm like, I want it. That one's mine. I want it. I want them. maybe I watch those cheesy horse girls, horse girl movies too much. I don't know, but I realized pretty quickly it is not that is not how it works. <laughs> what draws you to that? So is there a? I know you see that, and it's almost like pulling an antique or a, an old car out of a garage, and you see its potential. But is there a? Is do you enjoy the emotional connection and the communication that goes along with that? when seeing an animal think and feel differently towards you? What is it that draws you to that experience? I don't know. I don't know precisely, but there is a silver spoon in my mouth from when I was a kid, but there was some behind closed doors stuff that kind of made my childhood a living hell. And so instead of 
hanging out with friends and hanging out with my family, I ended up just gravitating towards animals. And a lot of the times I do stupid shit with my animals. Like I would jump over the back of my horse's butt, slide off the end or crawl under his feet. And there's a lot of times that animals don't like that. A lot of it became like desensitizing and figuring out how these animals communicate. And this was before YouTube and stuff like that. I was just reading books and figuring it out, just trial and error. And I was, hell, I was under 10. I don't, I don't know how old I was, but I was just a little kid. But it, I think a part of it comes to seeing that they're not, they don't want to hurt anybody, but they, there's something inside that's, I don't know how to explain it, but I guess, yeah, it's the connection that builds over time that you've earned their trust and you've earned this companion that has been it's not just a dog that you buy and you feed and that kind of just oh this is great this is awesome it's something that you have to work for and i think any kind of relationship if if you're not putting in the work then what's it really worth but i think yeah seeing the the difference and not even just like a good dog like for instance ace that was like the big one that had a lot of views that kind of changed everything and as far as the social media plus that was the only one that i actually took video of yeah because it was, I was like, damn it, I never take videos or pictures of step by step, but I want to watch it for myself. So I decided to make this account where if my family comes over for Thanksgiving, my grandma doesn't see it and go, oh my gosh, that dog's going to eat me. That's just setting the stage for disaster. But it, there was one time he had these like night terrors, but it was, and I had never really seen it outside of still very aggressive dogs, still forward aggressive and just unsure of a lot of things. But he had these these very violent dreams and he would rip out of them like Cujo and he bit me a couple times I was like what the fuck and so he was always in his own little area he wasn't pushing any boundaries in that sense just because how do you fix the, the pop how do you move past all that I don't know what's going on in his head he's good when he's awake but those things still come up so I know there's something there and I ended up just doing a lot of confidence building and just slowing it down and working with him for 20, 30 minutes, and then he goes into a decompression for 10 minutes. And over time, over the course of two or three months, he ended up afterwards, I guess it was once I realized he was having these night terrors, he started having these unhappy dreams where his tail is wagging and he's like howling. And I think that of just being able to help someone who can't help themselves, that's what it is. He's helping someone who can't help themselves. I fuck it. I hate bullies. I hate people that I hate everything about people who think they can take without even asking or thinking they're higher than someone else. Just it, it just drives me nuts. And with animals, they don't have a voice. Are they supposed to use their words? Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's I feel like it's a it's the more and more people that are online and looking at how to do these things, I feel like are taking the I don't want to say a shortcut, but there's so much information all the time of how to train your dog, how to do this, how to do that. We're actually losing touch with the innate ability to communicate with these animals, to recognize body language because we're so detached from what's happening right in front of us. I think that's absolutely correct. One, I'm hearing some commonality when I'm talking to a lot of trainers that are taking extreme behavior with childhood and more or less animals at some point in time being the only outlet that the trainer had. And I, same situation, abusive home, neglectful home, three Cocker Spaniels. My escape from that abuse was running through the woods in Tennessee with three Cocker Spaniels for eight hours a day. And so there was this abundance of time with the animals just living looking you know. just seeing acknowledging yeah. it just watching them just studying them because you're a kid and you're breaking yeah being present i think that's an interesting thing because they think that some i think some trainers are right there's a it's protocol forward when it comes from i don't know how to do this and you're grasping on to people that are packaging this stuff and bottling this stuff and selling this stuff as a way to do these things but 
before you get to a place where you go to establish protocol, you have to be present with the animal and get to know the animal before you get to know the problem. If you don't know the animal before you think you've identified the problem, you're missing 70% of that dog. And it's an interesting thing to hear. I'm also hearing a commonality with trainers that have spent a tremendous time alone with animals. And going back to childhood, if you had a shitty upbringing and shit's going on in the home, drugs and abuse, and you're getting away from it and those animals are there, that's there's just something that imprints with that kind of outlet in that time. There is, there was a trainer I talked to. He actually, aside from, I don't really talk to a whole lot of trainers too often, but, or even open up my <laughs> gelatin like the closet full of skeletons but there is there's a trainer that had specifically said there is something about someone with childhood trauma that sees the diamond in the rough and will advocate for that dog and they know what it's like to be misunderstood or anything like that and they had actually given me like just a couple different books to read that have nothing to do about dog training but just how we perceive the world around us and i was like oh shit that is spot on Yeah, you can see it in a trainer's path too. I think those trainers more times than not attach themselves to rescue, whether they did it intentionally or intrinsically, because the rescue scenarios where trainers receive dogs, it is a more clear example of a dog that has nowhere to go and is on its last leg. And from there, your business, I think that's where business really starts to make a U-turn into behavior. You're getting all these different dogs with these horrendous backstories and you've got this context for what this dog has been put through and then you're the person to potentially give them a a second chance. And I think there's, it's funny because that's what I was that person for a lot of people and a lot of rescues. And now that, so I'm here in Colorado and there are, there's a lot of changes. There's a lot of people moving in here, like the price of rent and housing, it's happening everywhere. And I'm sure, especially you're in California, correct? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, everybody's leaving me to go to you. (laughs) No, you can keep them, please, please. No one knows how to drive in the snow and it's fucking obnoxious. Drive all, really. Get out of the fast lane. Go camp in the mountains, not the fast lane. But no, there's this, I've always known like certain rescues that have always helped me out. Like they know even when I was younger, I was like 16 or 17, but I knew my shit. I made it make sense. But I went to that same rescue and it's, they're overpacked. The owner, it's a new owner now and she has, She's just not utilizing what's there. I had talked to the previous owner and some of the employees are still there that know who I am, but it's predominantly this group of kids and the turnover rate for that is just ridiculous where they don't know what they're doing. They want to work with animals and there's nothing they can do about it because they don't have the knowledge. I, it, Knowing what I know with an in-home board and train where I take on extreme behavior, I the thing that scares me to death is knowing what a lack of knowledge rescues, volunteers, fosters have with dog dynamics, understanding behavior, and them potentially just continuing to rotate dogs into their home and to their pack with their children and not knowing a damn thing about what they're looking at. That's a recipe for disaster. Question for you. So going into a little bit into your process, when you're talking about dogs that are bred for higher purpose or bred to respond to stimuli, the protection breeds, the guard breeds, What do you do differently in your training plans comparative to maybe dogs that aren't bred to perform those tasks that don't need that outlet in order to stay balanced? I move through these steps. What are the genetic drives of certain dogs? Not everyone's going to go spend a bunch of money on Embark or the 
DNA testing. But even then, there's working line. There's there's dogs that are bred specifically for temperament. There's for health, for all these different things. But there's a lot of things that play into that. So I will typically just, what are your biggest problems? What do you want the dog to do? What would you like to change? What are your realistic goals and your unrealistic goals? Nine times out of 10, we hit the unrealistic goals. But if it's a dog that is very forward aggressive, they're not actually training the dog with a muzzle. So I'm like, pull the muzzle off. That's just, that's frustrating. And I'll just coexist with the dog. And if the dog bites me, the dog bites me. But there's, I don't even know how to explain it. There's a telltale sign of whether that dog will actually bite you or not. Yeah, I agree. I do the same thing. The dog's not on the muzzle because I'm looking at low level. I can see it coming, especially with German Shepherds. You can see them clocking and making the decision to bite you comparative to some of the bully counterparts where you get the explosion before you get the, the glance. Yep. So then when you're assessing, you're more or less reading their body language. You've already got a roadmap for what the plan, what the expectations or what the goals might be for the client. So what's your first step? Are you looking to get onto the lead and start working that dog and pit that dog against other triggers? Are you looking to be the trigger a little bit more often and work through the client? It depends on what we're looking at. So if if it's inside the home and people come in and that's the only problem. It's when people come into the home. There's some sort of maybe even resource guarding. That's the symptom, right? The resource guarding of the home or the person or the whatever it is. Or is it all the time? The dog has zero confidence or it's just lashing out at things. And so it really depends. So I will typically just ignore when I ignore the dog. Oh, I'm not a threat. Just drop the leash. Just ignore it. The dog usually comes up. And if I think it's going to bite me, we'll take a, a different direction or I'll turn around or I'll do whatever. But Nine times out of 10, these dogs have e-collars on. They have prong collars on. They have harnesses and slip leads and choke, like the whole fucking thing. And it's just get the shit off the dog. Get it all off. Here's a rope. Here's a little slip lead. Put, put the slip lead on the dog. And I'll typically take the slip lead. I'll either go outside or do whatever, depending on where we do the greetings. And I'll just start walking the dog. Sometimes they fight it. Sometimes they don't. But I'm pretty good with my leash pressures, which I think a lot of that comes from working with horses, is... Finding the perfect pressure point for a dog is like finding a number between one and 50. Finding a pressure point on a horse is like a decimal between one and 100. They're much more sensitive. And so you can tell what's working and what's not. And if I just say yes and no and yes and no and good job, they go, oh, my gosh, I don't have to do that. I don't have to delegate. What ha- You can all. Oh, so, and this. Pre- so what that sounds like, what that sounds like, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I'm so sorry. You're good. What? Because I want to circle back on the leash pressure thing just for to unpack that a little bit because that's a big term and everybody uses it um, from Dr. Jackal to Mr. Hyde. When you The way you're describing it though, it sounds like you're using leash pressure to invoke decisions from the dog with that kind of communication along with it versus managing the dog's display and dragging the dog along this log. It is absolutely a communication line. Also, I say that to all of my clients. This is not a leash to manage your dog. This is your communication line. And so if you just tap it, the dog has to understand what it is. If they've had all of these things on them, a shock collar, a bark collar, a prong collar, all these things, like the dog is more often than not just expecting all these corrections. And the anticipation of that is just fueling the behavior. That's not every time, but I've seen it more often than not, where they just, no one knows what the hell they're doing. The dog, the owners. I- I can see that winning the dog's trust. If you're coming at it from a tactile stimulation perspective and the dog starts to interpret what this means as opposed to fear what this is, then I can see them lowering their battle shield a little bit quicker if they were a dog at trainers that went hard to try to level them out right away or the 
owners are constantly trying to manage their displays. There's tons of pressure coming from that. Sometimes less is more. Even though they can't contain these dogs with all these crazy things, just give the dog the opportunity to make a mistake. Because if we're not giving the dog the opportunity to make a mistake and to learn from that mistake, it's like giving a kid a calculator during a math test. They're not learning, right? And so if there's all this pressure all the time, remove the pressure, they go, wow, that's actually nice this is awesome granted i can't pet the dog at this point i can't touch the neck of the dog or even the owners have to do that and that's with a a client dog if you will of just let me see the dog let me see what we're working with i had a dog actually did i did you ever see maverick did you hear about maverick (laughs) he was a german shepherd that came out of burbank i think los angeles somewhere and he was shipped out here and it turned into this like how are we gonna do this and a lot of it is just standing next to the person holding the leash just standing there casually because it's all these prong collars and everything else and the dog's on drugs or withdrawal from drugs because he wasn't on drugs that day and it becomes just coexisting with the dog i'm not a threat and then you know tell the dog good job and then he pets the dog good job good job if he barks i just stand there he can tap the slip lead say no and then over time over the course of 15 minutes i can then take that leash I'll start by just like moving my hand towards that person. But from there, once I have that slip lead in my hand, I can walk away. But I have the slip lead now, which I typically use like a seven to eight foot slip lead. And I go, come on. And he goes, what? Right after that, it's it's pretty simple. Like right. I can't move into a space, but I then take away all of the pressures of no one. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. He's not telling me what I'm supposed to do. You're freaking me out. What do I do? You take away all this anxiety by just saying yes and no. And it's a little bit of a leash tap to get, it's a game to them of which way do I go? Go this way? Nope. And they get really excited. Granted, that is just building rapport in this dog. But I would say some of, did I answer your question? You did. Hey, what it sounds to me like is you're, you're getting the dog to make choices. It sounds like you're communicating to the dog as opposed to any of the other stuff that might happen in the spectrum of a trainer trying to get a dog to follow suit. It sounds like you're hedging the stimulation of the environment to reduce the pressure of that interaction. And so I I guess take that dog, uh, in the case of a Maverick, a German Shepherd, you're speaking to its its nature there with handler focus and biddability, and they're bred to want to do things for us. And so that's it's an easy handshake. What do you do for the bully breeds that aren't handler focus and are a little bit more of a tough sell in that handshake that you're trying to accomplish? Man, I think maybe it's just me. I don't know. But the bullies are so forgiving. They can be just put through the freaking ringer of life and they will. It depends on. So it depends on a lot of different things. But for me, just my personal opinion. I, I love the bullies because they will just, they're so forgiving. They just go, oh, thank God you're not going to, this is fun. This is nice. It's not so much this drive per se, but it is, they are very good with people. They're not genetically programmed to go after people. Like animals, that's its own thing, but they always scale really high on their tolerance of people. So in that sense, they're always, to me, they're easier. They're easier to work with because, yeah, they might have a little bit more hesitance of it, but they come along much faster. I would say most of the bullies that I work with, as long as they're they're medically healthy, like they have a clean bill of health of there's not like inbreeding and all these crazy misfiring neurons and things like that. But we have these dogs that they look scarier, they seem scarier, but they're going to move through the process much faster 
because they're more willing to trust a person, especially a stranger, a German Shepherd, a Belgian Malinois, even border collies and healers. Any of those high drive dogs, they're very much so this singular owner kind of dog. They're very bonded, if you will, with their one person. If their one person doesn't know how to handle them from the get-go. I I usually explain it to my clients of let's take on a scale of one to a hundred, as far as drive, where do these dogs fall, right? You're going to have your Belgian Malinois, let's say border collies, these high energy dogs versus your, your mastiffs, your bullies that really aren't that drivey, but they can be, they can go either way. So if a border collie, let's say is a 50 and you're not utilizing that, let's say you only use 25% of their brain activity, that other percentage is going to go into anxiety. How they show that anxiety is going to vary on the dog. But a lot of times these dogs just have this untapped energy that they don't know what to do with, right? Mm -hmm. They don't know they can shut down or if they want their dogs tired, they'll, I call it dumb running where they're so exhausted from running, they just, they pass out. So there's so much more that goes into it than just the breed and the genetics. I've met German Shepherds that have such a, a high drive, but it's high enough that they don't care who gives it to them. They don't care who puts them to work as, so- as long as somebody does. And so they'll warm up to me like that. Or there's the other side where they like the owner, they've been utilized. Those are the most challenging, I would say. But the bullies are pretty simple. As long as you know how to recognize what you're working with and read the body language, I think they're way easier to work with than a German Shepherd or a Belgian Malinois or a even a border collie for that sense. I'm, I haven't heard you say anything around because you're talking about getting yourself off the threat list and getting the dog comfortable with you. I didn't hear you say anything about like treats and reinforcement in that initial phase of trying to pull yourself off the threat list. Is there a reason for that? Because most of the dogs that I obviously I will offer, a lot of times I'll use like squeaky toys or just I have like squeakers that I just keep everywhere. <laughs> they're like in my purse, they're in my wallet, they're fucking everywhere. But there is a certain aspect of what was that? What is that? What, what are you doing? If the dog has something that they like to do, then yes. But I don't necessarily want to... Most of the dogs in that scenario aren't going to take food. The They're overstimulated. They're too freaked out. They're just, that vagus nerve is just... We're not... Yeah, they're just too shut down to be doing anything or taking food from anyone. It's still offered, but if they're not taking it, I'm not going to sit there and shove treats and food and everything else in their mouth. But it's one of those things that I like to use either if they know what a clicker is, if they know what a squeaky toy is. I'll use that as a reward system if they don't know what yes is. Or how do you praise your dog? Oh, I love on him. Okay, well, I'm not going to go grab that dog's face right now. So let's try this. Let's try that. Most of the time, the dog is too freaked out to to really engage with any of that stuff. But once the leash work starts working and he goes, oh, I can, I get this. Okay, I get this. I'll just start with leash work. Maybe I'll say, yeah, okay. I'll offer food a little bit later. Um, if he's warming up to me and his body language is, oh, okay, I can figure this game out. This is clicking with me. But most of the time they don't really eat just because they're too stressed out. Okay. What about the classic issue with bull breeds with excitability? I caution a lot of my mentees or apprentices on using toys right away with the bull breeds, bringing tug out, especially and having the dog explode into you during the initial phases of assessing the dog or motivating the dog because sometimes they can lose control just with that kind of excitement, especially if you haven't earned enough trust with them. Maybe there's a little bit of conflict or maybe they got some threshold sensitivities on the 
start spiraling and redirecting. Do you use toys in any stage of your process? And do you go to the extreme and get that dog really moving and get that predatory mechanism awake and active? Oh, yeah. As far as toys, yeah, I, I will always engage. Unless there's a serious, don't touch my toys, don't do this, don't do that. Obviously, all the toys are going to be up off the ground after we've talked a little bit. But I would say, yes, absolutely. I like to use, it depends on the, it depends on the type of dog. So we had a Staffordshire Bull Terrier that was in here. He was like a, a show dog for a while. He was just, he was a mess. But that dog had zero drive except to chase, to catch, to kill. And so in that sense, I don't want to give him any kind of, we would play tug, but that was about it. Otherwise, that, that engagement was more along the lines of impulse control, communicating when you are about to lose it. And from that perspective, it was impulse control with a place cot and a lure course. By the end of it, lure course and a place cot. And then he could break and come to me. If he goes after the toy, the lure course stops. There's no more chase. There's no more game. That way. So you're so you're talking about the dogs that are looking at the toy like it's dinner and take it very seriously. And the, the hypothalamus circuits, the limbic system engage. And you're saying, step off that. Don't I don't want to give the dog crack cocaine. I want to start with a lower value toy and build the impulse control in. So the dog gets a little bit of what it wants, but then this lure course. So you're talking about like chasing the, the lure, like a full on lure course. Uh, yeah, that's what I use. Yeah. But I don't, he well, he's never actually engaged it. He had never been, a, if he does go after it, it stops. The chase is done. Got it. Mainly because I want him to recognize if he goes after something, it's no longer fun. Okay, hold on. Let's stop. Let's pause here. This is like part of the, I really like this. So you've got the crack cocaine. You've got the thing that's speaking to that dog's area of the brain that is taking things very seriously. And that's probably the problem that you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. You're introducing a lower value toy. You're building some value in that lower value toy. You're engaging with the dog, with that toy. The dog likes it. But when the dog breaks off to mean business, with the lure course stops, or are you using that to practice your impulse control cue, a call off cue? Where does the dog pick that message up? It depends on where the dog is at in that stage. So I've had different dogs that have a good recall, that have a good call off. This dog in particular, was a it was a challenge because he would... Getting this dog out of his drive mode, it was zero to 100. There was no middle gear. There was no. Right. And and that's what brought him to me. He was on a, he was going to be euthanized because he had bit a baby. Not bad, but a kid was crying at another dog. And the household didn't have any structure whatsoever. But another dog was sitting on the couch. The other dog jumped off and he's been hyper-focusing on this baby the entire time. Oh, it's go time. Not even recognizing what's going on. The other aspect of that was he was so food motivated. So food motivated that he would do everything for the food but not retain any of it. Like it's it. the hyper-focus on the food and you pair that with a squirrel. That's the recipe for a disaster. So that was a different, like, it was a different approach in a very extreme scenario. So in most cases, when I work with the lure course, it's what does the dog struggle with the most? Is it going to be a prey drive that they just cannot shut down and they're hyper, like, I can't get them off of that? It depends on what the dog is and their history. But with this instance, it was just desensitize it. Get used to little furry things running back and forth because you can't control the world, but you can help practice handling the sensitivities of the world. Does that make sense? So the lure, I'm trying to envision the setup here. 
is the lure course active and running while you're working the dog with the place work or are you starting it and stopping it? It's on a remote. So I'm working. So play sand, downstay, lure course goes. Give me like a, a potential step breakdown. I know it's not how you do it for all dogs, but just give me like the step-by-step breakdown on this setup and how you how are you turning this lure off to help the dog understand game stops if you attempt to predate the lure course. So I work on be the most exciting thing in the room, right? If you want a dog that's going to go hunting, then absolutely. This dog that he was put through in previous settings, he was put through set work, but never allowed to actually get the rat. So it was just building and building this anticipation of until I can get to it. What I would do is I would start with the lure course further away. I would start with a flirt pole, right? But I have my own toy in my own hand, his favorite toy, and I would play with him while the flirt pole goes, right? If he stops this toy, and engages with that, I drop the flirt pole and it's over. I won't play with the flirt pole with him. I love that. I love that so much. I love that. Even, But even if the dog isn't, it, it, what if it's play drive going towards the flirt pole, not prey drive, right? That Because there is though the dogs that will turn on. and But in that situation, if he's actively participating with the tug and you've got the flirt pole on the other hand and he just sees the flirt pole as a little bit of a higher value toy, are you messing with, you're starting at like low criteria? So that's where I... Start with one. I use squirrel skins for my flirt pole. Loop. Okay. Yeah. That, I was going to ask you, what do you do for the dogs that recognize the synthetic versus the real thing? So that's I, brilliant. I have a real saying. It doesn't come out very often, but we figure out what's obviously it's not going to be if it's the chase that he's after, if it's just the chase, because once he gets it, it's just another animal that they're fighting, right? That's the bully breed for you. So if I can get him off of the chase and engage with something more exciting, how do I make that more rewarding than anything else? Because once he actually gets to it, it's not doing anything. The The fight's not there. So brilliant, though, because I look at things very similarly. I look at I'm looking for threshold sensitivities. I'm looking for dogs that lose control and go straight into conflict seeking or predation, right? The areas of the brain in charge of being an animal, start activating, and maybe the frontal cortex, that's what I deem a threshold sensitivity is the frontal cortex starts to check out and the hypothalamus circuits in the limbic system check in and the dog is a fucking animal, no longer the dog that you were communicating to. There is a tolerance between that switch. So a lot of dogs, it's just a switch. Over time, that's exactly what I did with this dog is it was a switch for a long time. Don't get me wrong. If a squirrel runs by him and he didn't have a good owner to really keep a handle on it, he would whine. He would bark. I got him to actually start communing like the annoying, the little bully screeches. But at that point, he gets a toy. He gets any toy. That's smart. It's really smart. You're, keep, you're keeping the frontal, you're keeping the lobes online and you're keeping that area of the brain active and I'm assuming raising the criteria and getting that lure course like really moving and close so that it's wisping it by him. Under the place cut. My God, that's so good. Uh, well, that's so good. Not necessarily right off. The- How did you come up with that? So that's, I haven't really heard of anyone using lure courses to work through threshold sensitivities and predatory issues. Like, how did you, did you come up with that on your own? Did yeah. someone teach you that? Okay. I initially, like, yeah, it, it just, I was working, my border collie loves the, the lure course. She doesn't necessarily, she'll chase it. I have to put like a, a tennis ball rope on it like the skin of a tennis ball because that's her jam but 
the other dogs will play with it and I don't mind. They don't have a very high prey drive, but, and it depends. Some dogs I'll let chase it just to practice the call off. But with him, it was just like, let's build a communication basis where I know you're going to fucking lose it because he wasn't a, a training dog. He was a rehab rehome and he had been with me for a year, maybe, yeah. maybe not quite a year, almost. And it was just, it was something that was, it was a struggle. It was hard. And so I was like, all right, we need to figure out what the fuck we can do here because the flirt pole is just not cutting it because he's still trying to go after. And it's not so much, not other dogs at this point. It's not, it's the running ones. It's the rabbit yeah. that comes out of the bush when we go out in public. It's those things that we never prepare for and it startles everyone and he's gone in his head. Yeah. Again. And so once he engages, good luck. That dog is, you could even put an e-collar on him and he doesn't do it. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. Most, most of them are super neck hard and I, I've had more success at tapping the rear and going than anything around the neck to get them to disengage from like fire and brimstone. But what about for other cases where you've got to transpose this to an owner, where you've actually got a training dog and this is something you've got to bring out of your wheelhouse to help the dog think and respond and more or less disengage from predatory sequences. How do you transpose this if you build it? Let's say you bring this dog on to your board and train, you build it. Do you bring in alternative behaviors like heel work so that these behaviors will transpose to the home? So I don't do that case in particular was not a board. Inter I don't do board right. unless the owner can't mentally and physically cannot do it. I will do either. I will come there every day and charge it the same as a board and train or I will do a board and train and they come work with me every day. However, it works. But for the most part, my my training, like the first phase of my training protocol is always the same. It is. If the dog is anxious and doesn't have an off switch, put that dog in a decompression. Put that dog in a quiet kennel covered. So let's talk about that because I mentioned that to Norka. So there's a running theme with extreme dogs that are, for whatever reason, pretty far gone. And they need, a, we'll say, a total reset with a trainer where you got to take them into your home, move them out of the environment, and build them from scratch. And when I was listening to Norka's process, she was outlining a hard reset. And I was telling her that you had a really interesting decompression protocol with the dogs that are just coming in like a Tasmanian devil and are just all over the map. And could you talk a little bit about that? Your brilliant kennel setup that you have going on where you're more or less detaching dogs from all stimuli when they come to you? So it's essentially, they will be in a sensory deprivation chamber. If anything sets them off, you don't need to see it. You can smell it maybe, but you don't need to see it. You don't need to hear it. So I have, I actually just took my dog room apart, but I had soundproofing panels that I had with my, I, it got a bit excessive, but I basically built a climate controlled soundproof kennel system with a camera in it. And there is a light in there that comes on during the day. And there's an infrared that comes on at night and there's air pumping in at all times. There's a, typically they'll get like a blanket or a mat or something the first little while, but most dogs really like the worst dogs settle in a couple, like a day because they've never had the opportunity to fully relax. So what does that look like? Cause you, I know you told me before that you have a camera in there. So what are you looking for to know that dog is decompressing? It, it happens no matter what. It is, if you think of any kind of overstimulation as a radiation zone, right? Some dogs, they'll, let's say reactivity, will react 10 feet away, 20 feet away, 100 feet away. If they even think of another dog that might be a dog, they'll go crazy. They have, all of that is an internal process that happens over time. They don't have a relaxed switch. They don't know how to shut it off. So once we get into a decompression, 
the ones that have been the most pent up, scared of everything, usually the most aggressive, they literally will just die straight up, just pass out. You have to poke them with a stick. Are you still alive? But they come out, they will, I'll do a hand feeding protocol where they'll learn basic stuff. Just I'll associate the clicker, clicker, food, clicker, food. Let's go outside, go potty. They always have water in there for the dogs that destroy their water bowls. I have a giant hamster waterer. <laughs> Thank you. But it's only in extreme cases that just destroy everything around them. But what I typically see is they might pace a little bit. They'll as much as they can in the kennel, they'll pace and they just settle and they'll sleep. They'll get up and they'll pace. Some of them try to dig their way out. Some of them will howl. That's why I have the camera. I just want to make sure they're not hurting. They're not hurting themselves. They're not self-mutilating or anything like that. And nine times out of 10, they won't. I have had one case that tried to break out of a kennel, but he had gotten like his tooth hooked underneath like the the gate part. That's why I like to have the camera. I always have my alerts on. If they're too loud, I'll just sit and watch them and just make sure they settle down. But typically, most the, the average dog can have a bed in there. They'll have the water in there. And you'll notice they're just much more calm. They're much more collective. There's an aspect where they recognize they hear things, they can smell things, but there's nothing they can do about it. And that's okay. That's fine. Have you ever been in a deprivation chamber? Yes. Is that how you came up with the concept? Because I've been in deprivation chambers before. And the one thing I noticed is I felt like I was coming into the world again. Right. All of the, oh my God, and reality and light and smells and sight. And like, where did you? Like, here you're just like, whoa, wow. Yeah. The fresh light. Plus you're in a new environment. So the fact that you're bringing them in, you're not letting them acclimate. Where am I? Who am I? Where, who's who, who's where? And they're coming out and taking everything in for the first time. Tell me like, cause that's very precarious. I, I, I would imagine you lower the, the level of whatever would exist previous if you hadn't decompressed them. But coming out of that protocol and you open up the door, let there be light, what do you do there? What's the first thing that you meet them with? They come out twice a day. If I think if they're really whining and it's been like a couple of days and they're not, they'll sleep all day, all day. I'm like, you want some food? They're like, no, let me go outside. Let me go pee. And they will go back straight into their crate. Whether they wanted to be in there or not in the first place, all they want is to go back to their little den and sleep. Typically my wow. like this like radiation zone that I was talking about gets a little smaller and a little smaller and it's almost like it's inside their kennel after either a week or a few days. Sometimes it's two weeks. It really depends. But they'll start to take out their frustration on their bedding and things like that. After that, we can start really working everything. So they get out about, I usually do 30 to 45 minutes for hand feeding. And then we'll go out and potty. We'll go out just always doing leash work. Just that's an expectation. I don't have to teach that. We're associating what the clicker is. That way I can have an excellent response out of that. So when they come out of this decompression, I go into what's called a caught decompression. Where, I don't know, do you want Hold on. Like that guy, Argos. Now he's just sleeping on the top bunk. That's a nice bunk bed situation. Thank you. He, I had to build them. <laughs> but I might put in an order for one. Those are nice. I was going to sell them a little bit because I built like these nice, I hate crates. I hate crates and kennels. Ugh, they're hideous. They're just, they're god awful. But so I built like these nice kennels during 2020 <laughs> and then everyone bought them off of me. They're just so expensive to ship. So next time I'm in California, yeah. you and Brent Labrada are both getting one. Yeah. So dog came out, let there be light. There's a person here. This person's taking me out on excursions. There's no expectation. We're just walking together. And then what do you do next? They don't even leave of... the house at this point. They, okay. they never left the house. Everything that starts on the outside all comes from the inside. I have cats that will sit there and harass dogs. I have another dog that will just be like, hey, hi, 
you want to play, but they're very good about knowing their boundaries. My border collie will set dogs up to literally test them. She will go eat in front of a grab a mouthful of. All right, hold on, stop, stop. You're saying that this dog has access once the dog is decompressed. You is, you immerse them into your home, free roaming. They're tethered to me. Tethered to you. Yeah, got it. Going but they're walking. They're they've got access to cats. They've got access to dogs, but they're tethered to you. Wow. Decompression. Okay. Okay. And so, what do you see? Like in those moments, like where what indicates that you're in the green here, and this dog is starting to place value and starting to place trust in the environment versus oh, like. This might, we might have some skirmishes. This dog's kind of falling back to the furry middle finger triggers. At that point, I'll put them in a kennel down here and they'll go hang out there for a little bit. It's just a place that they can't get out of. My other dogs don't go wander and harass them, but they'll just be on place like this. I have three dogs and a cat. Then once they're just settling, like I'll just click food. There's nothing to worry about here. Then they'll go back up and that's their like overnight kennel. That becomes like you go sleep in your decompression kennel. Just they can, I know there's no factors coming into it to set back to be like overlooked. I want to make sure they're no, impressed. I love it. I love it. If, if, cause if they hear noises and they're, they're the type that are trigger seeking at night and start going off on noises, peculiar sounds. That's, I love that you're controlling, as you're controlling environment. Yeah. Yeah. But it very little training at this point. Click food. I'm food. Click food. No expectations. No cues. In short, trust me. Trust my pack. Let's go tackle the world. That's probably, if I'm thinking about that, because I don't think that I'm just bouncing things off of the way I view things in my, because I run in on board train. I take in a lot of aggressive dogs with kids and, and my pack, but I rely on the training element to build rapport. But there's, I think it's interesting because if the dog is learning to just trust without the reliance of resources as a pathway to trust, they're learning something different. It's a reprogramming of yeah. their their neurological pathways that they have set in concrete it is rebuilding that whole like whole new world thing is going that fresh clean like wow i feel rested i'm in a good mood i feel great it's it would be the comparative difference of going to a work event like those three four day work events where you get a lot of presentations and you hear motivational speakers and you come out supercharged and programmed to love the company and do things mm -hmm. versus going to a decompression retreat where you're out in nature and there's nothing influencing you there's no information two different mindsets of coming out of that sort of stent I feel like with, especially with the dogs, my own dogs, they don't really do the decompression stuff. But if I really want to change the dog's outlook and how they, their willingness to engage, I need to start cutting away their predetermined, their, their expectations of things. And yep. so that's where yep. the decompression is super helpful where we can just get the dogs to relax, get an off switch. You don't have to be at 100% all the fucking time. You can relax. Yeah. You don't have to worry about everything all the time. But at the end of the day, if I'm solely building my training on just my ability to work with the dog, that sets the owners up for an unrealistic experience with their dog. If I can change the dog's, I guess, outlook on life with or without me there with a kennel, then when these dogs either go to their new homes or go back with their owners, it's not necessarily something that is um, it's not something that only the training has done. Like training can do a lot of things, right? 
association and, and rewiring those neurons and neurological pathways is, is phenomenal. But actually changing something in such a fast time is so much easier when it's a clean slate. I don't have to backtrack on. Ed. I, I love it. I love, I love it. If the training and the even counter conditioning process is the perceivable outlet for a dog that is struggling with issues. That that process, the counter conditioning, the influence that we've got going on, the reinforcement that we've got going on, the creating new associations, new feelings towards the environment, the trigger is like emptying out a pail. And therein, the owner has to continue to empty out this pail too, so that it starts to exist in the the home and the walk and the setting. You know what you're talking about is unplugging a drain at the bottom and pulling it out through the bottom. So, are these all? rehome scenarios or are you doing this for clients too? And if so, what kind of decompression protocols do you give them? How do you continue that for the dog? What's so funny because there's so many, there was a case in Huntsville, Alabama. One of the dogs was showing some resource guarding and I was, she was like pregnant and I don't know what to do. This is crazy. What I didn't know, and this is on me, is that she has another dog in the home that was super anxious all the time and anxiety spreads like fucking wildfire but it was almost it wasn't quite litter mate syndrome but there was definitely like a weird pecking order where they relied on each other a lot and with that i was like here's what i want you to do and it sounds really nice but all it is put your dog in a kennel with a cover for a week their own space right their own little slice of heaven the dog can just self-suit and cope with the around it that we have no control of if we're looking at conditioned emotional responses this would be the antithesis of that there would be a conditioning of blanket goes over, things go dark. I typically power down when this happens. Do you it, it does do you feel like it becomes that? It becomes a conditioned decompression where they go they decompress faster and you see a benefit there or as opposed to what? So like I'm trying to figure out if through through time, if this is something that an owner does with as a remedy for a dog's anxiety. Do you see the dogs getting into a rhythm of knowing, all right, blanket goes down, things get quiet, things get dark, I can just relax and I can power down and I don't have to worry, I don't have to stress. Do you see a, a do you see a conditioned response to that procedure? I wouldn't say that it is an end all be all. It is not some magic wand for training, but it helps if there is history, right? Or in the scenario of you were asking if it's an, an emotional association or response. So in the sense of what is a kennel, it's your own room to go crawl into if you don't feel like being social at a party. I gotta wonder, with the soundproofing and low light being something that makes market progress in a dog decompressing, you gotta wonder if someone ever set up a shelter environment or a boarding environment where the structure of that building was soundproofing the kennels with controlled low light, what the state and the stress of the shelter would be with a change of an environment like that. So the dogs couldn't hear each other screaming for 24 hours out of the day and couldn't sleep because of all the barking. I think there's still going to be a shelter. I think it would be, hell, just not even seeing the other dogs, I think, would be a huge progress but at the end of the day it's not a decompression per se that that fixes it and if the dog is in a loud environment being basically set up to fail with all these other triggers and they all just fuel each other all the time with people coming by and oh who's this guy like it's not in a perfect world i would say yeah let's have basically the equivalent of just frp walls with some no different than like a cubicle with frp so the dogs don't shred it but it's I don't think it would be that hard to do, but it's not an end-all, be-all answer to stress in a kennel, stress in like a shelter situation. 
because I'd say a lot of what goes on in a kennel, like they they don't get interaction a lot with people mm-hmm. in a healthy manner. Does that make sense? I think that I really enjoyed this conversation with you today. I looking at some of these strategies that you deploy, you, know, you think about how like the force free industry, a lot of good things have come from the force free industry with cat protocols and bat protocols. And more or less, it's a utilization of the environment in order to create some associations and right size environmental stressors and give the dog choice with space and distance and time and exposure. But it's utilizing and changing the environment to shape, decompress, alter. And what you're doing is very similar, changing the environment to the extent that you control mistakes and setbacks with a dog reacting while they're transitioning into your care and your program but also giving the dog an opportunity to just power down, maybe for the first time, especially if a dog was in a tumultuous situation previous. I definitely, like, there. it sounds so easy to say, oh yeah, like a soundproof kennel, but it's that that's almost like putting this shield over a dog where nothing can ever mess with them. I'd say at the end of the day, it ends up becoming more of from totally soundproof to little less soundproof to little less soundproof to a blanket yeah. over the crate in a quiet room to a blanket over a crate downstairs where there's activities. It's brilliant. It's decompression and slowly letting stimuli back in. And I got, I would like to try it. I'm very curious. I would like to, I would, I I might want to bring in a motherfucker just so that I can refer out and get your assistance on trying this. What I heard today was really fascinating. Uh, The lure course with impulse control and potential threshold sensitivities and right sizing that. I think is a really brilliant thing. Uh, The decompression route, before you start applying your communication, your stimulation, building a bond right away, giving a dog an opportunity to just rinse out and decompress before you start building them back, I think is a really cool thing. In a lot of trainers, there is this common theme with hard reset strategies for extreme dogs. I'm hearing it as I talk more and more. A lot of trainers are like, and it's mostly that there is a compulsion version of hard reset would be in a kennel food deprivate, right? So I just think that there's a missing link here with the way you look at decompression and the way you forge a bond and the way you get a dog to relax in your process that I haven't heard really celebrated at all. There are some things that I think that people could benefit from with the way you look at some of these cases and things that people might be mindful of and be able to use. That's the type of inspiration that in puts people back in a learner's mindset and they go, oh shit, I never thought of that. Because when you mention that stuff to me, I'm like, oh my God, that's so interesting. You're looking at it differently. And when you start to realize that people are getting things done and looking at the problem differently and able to achieve a result, that's where I think the industry can come together. And that's where the ego drops, if you will. Here is where I get so nervous about this kind of stuff though let's say like the place caught and the lure course what corrections are people giving if that dog goes after the lure is it someone who's more heavy-handed and is just gonna shut the dog down are they recognizing when they shut the dog down that's something that it's so hard to recognize and i would hate to see dogs get worse before they get better or they're even worse off than they were before regardless of who and i'm not saying i'm the best at this this is just something that i do and I know what to look for. I know what I'm watching and I do it the best I can. Sometimes we have failures and you can only do what you can handle. No one's perfect. But if I put that out as a, this works, this is great. This is awesome. How many people are going to shift that 
ever so slightly and then it's a, just a very you had a lot of questions for me about the loot what are we doing how do you, how did what don't you deal with this but there's a very fine tuning way of doing it in the times that i've done it with these dogs but it might be totally different with a different dog i think a trainer that is on a level where they're teaching impulse control and place work with tug versus flirt pole raising that criteria to to a lure course that's not a shortcut and that's where a lot of the more compulsionary style trainers go because it's a more or less a business to them they're snapping necks and cash and checks and they wouldn't ever approach a setup like that where it would require that much emphasis in getting a dog to play getting a dog to understand and adding all of these different elements the person that would gravitate towards a strategy like that is a person who has already somewhat of a robust and malleable approach to extreme behavior and loves that and is curious about how to adopt it. And I think a conversation like this is going to get people very interested in wanting to talk to you more about it. And that's where I think you should start thinking about putting out demonstrations so that you can firm up, be able to mitigate an opportunity where somebody fucks it up in trying to attempt it. If I tried to attempt it, it wouldn't be right the first time, but I'm super passionate because I really, I understand it and I'm like, I want to try it. I just think it, it might be worthwhile to think that there are some things that you do that get results. And so all it would take is just a little bit of demonstration and a lot of trainers get it. So I run a, a dog trainer development community that has, I think, 62 trainers in it. And I put case studies up every, I've got, I'm approaching 25 case studies and I do webinars and we talk about cases. And I pause the, the video and I say, what's happening? What's the dog doing? What would you do here? What would be your, your best course of action? And what I found is when they see it and they're able to ask the right questions, it's as good as if we were in the same fucking room. For those trainers who are curious, they're there because they're curious, they want to get into behavior. Now they're able to see it and ask questions and now they can take it and practice. And so I think that's the world we're in now is that you can impact the industry with good techniques and philosophies, you know, if you document it right and you put it out there for the world to see. I'm a big fan. You're awesome. Yeah. Well, thank this you for having me on. I really appreciate it. This has been fun. Yeah, and let me know if you want to um, talk more about like, decompressions and the lower course stuff and kind of my work through with all of that. I'm happy to talk to you about it. I would absolutely love to bend your ear on how to set that up and how to do it because I could see that being a huge benefit for the right dogs for sure dude and it's the lower course stuff is more of is it something that you let them engage is it it really just depends on the dog and their drive and all i really line it up to is i'll use it in a million different ways and it's never really the same for each dog i am big flirt pole guy and i have a lot of threshold sensitivity dogs where dogs are just like fucking they go there and so you just inspired me to you just inspired me to start utilizing higher value predatory simulation with lower value toys and keep the game going and stop the game i would have probably did impulse and cues and called the dog off and built bomb proof down stays and went the longer road but i wouldn't have dropped the flirt pole so that i'm gonna i'm probably gonna be using that i'll send you some of my videos of me fucking it up royally so you can tell <laughs> Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm looking forward to it. I'm just going to smile at it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Take it easy. Thank you again. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me.